You'll need uh, some notes, and the guys were handing out notes as you were coming in. And we'll be looking at the chart on page 6 and the notes on page 7. And that chart is going to be a constant for us throughout this series. We've had two sessions so far. Last week we had uh, didn't meet for this because uh, I was not preaching and teaching last week. So hopefully there won't be other weeks where I'm not able to do that, but we'll see because there's some other stuff coming up. But we'll make it through one way or the other. Today, uh, the chart on page 6 and the notes on, on page 7. Before we get into those, let me remind you of some things that are coming up. This afternoon at 2.30 is our quarterly family meeting, congregational meeting. If you're able to make it for that, then please uh, please do come if you're a member of the of the church. We're going to be presenting the year-end a fourth quarter a treasurer's report. That's the main item of business. I'll give some information about some things that are, are coming up. But in order to hear that, uh, answer any questions you might have about it, and then officially vote to place it on file, we need a quorum, which is 20% of our uh, voting membership, church membership. So we need uh, at least 20% is about uh, 50 of our adults. So we've got about 250 adult members. Uh, that's not counting the kids because they're not members. Uh, so we need about 50 of you to show up in order to make it official. If you can do that at 2.30 this afternoon, please please do. We'll be done certainly by 3.30, uh, so it won't be more than an hour and maybe less than that. Wednesday is our midweek program that we have every week, 7 o'clock, and we have classes for all ages. And the adult class this semester is the church history class that Dr. Combs is uh, leading for us. And then uh, at the end of this month and the 24th, Sunday evening, the 24th at 6 o'clock is the first session of the Oneness Marriage series. There was an introductory session uh, last month, but the first session of the actual content will be uh, on the 24th at 6 o'clock. So all of you who are interested in marriage, even if you're not married, uh, certainly those of you who are and you want to strengthen your marriages, that's what that is about we are providing child care for those who need it. If you can find child care, uh, that would be helpful to us. So the fewer we need to do that for, the, the easier, the better. Uh, but if you need the child care, we want you to be here, and we don't want that to be a deterrent. So you need to register for that. Uh, if you need child care especially, register. Let us know that you're coming, how many kids you have, and what ages. You can do that at the resource center out the back door and across the hallway. Uh, there's an online form. For that, you can do that at our website uh, as well, cbctrenton.com. We have uh, men coming up in just a few weeks is the annual uh, gun range event. So that's training and and target practice. It's always a very popular thing. It's very reasonably priced at $20 for the ammunition and the uh, food and all of that. So make note of that, guys. In fact, uh, register for that, and you can register for that same place in the resource center out the back door and across the uh, the hallway. Our next brunch is on Saturday the 2nd, March the 2nd, 10 a.m. at our house. And we would love to have you at the brunch. If you've never been to our house for one of those, we'd like to meet you in that setting. We just need to know how many people are coming so we know how much food to prepare. So let the folks at the information desk that's out in the lobby know, and they'll add your name to the list. Just a couple more. We've got our family skating event coming up on Saturday uh, the 16th. That'll be from 1.30 to 3 at the former uh, Icebox, now called the Brownstown Sports Center. It's on Telegraph Road near uh, West Road. There's no cost for the skating. It's $3 to rent the, uh, to rent the uh, skates. Uh, 
uh, if you don't have your don't have your own skates. And then last, baptism is the final Sunday of March. The 31st is our next baptism. If you have never been baptized, that means that you have been immersed to symbolize the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. If you've never been baptized that way, then you've not been baptized the way the Bible describes. You need to do that in order to be obedient to the Lord. You also need to do that in order to be uh, eligible to be a member of the, the church as well. So if that's never happened with you, it should because Jesus says to. And if you want to start that process, we have a one-page and a simple application. You can pick that up at the desk that's out in the lobby and uh, fill that out. Turn it in there. They'll get it to me. I'll contact you, and we'll go from there. All right. Why are we doing a series called From Self-Help to God's Help? A series that is about uh, you and and I uh, changing. Well, the reason that we're doing that is because God is, as I pointed out a couple of weeks ago, in the change business. And you see that in a number of places in Scripture. I mentioned two weeks ago that one of those is in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17. It's one of the most famous passages in the Bible about the Bible. Uh, and Paul, who wrote that to Timothy, in verse 15, reminds Timothy of the fact that he has known the Holy Scriptures from the time that he was a child. And that it's the scriptures that contain the information that are able to make you in the language of the King James wise unto salvation. And then Paul goes on to describe the work of the scriptures in the life of the person who has come to Christ, who has been saved. So the scriptures contain the information about the good news of the gospel that's necessary in order for us to be saved. But then having been saved, verse 16 says, all scripture is God breathed. And is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every every good work. So it moves from the scriptures and their work in salvation to scriptures and their work in sanctification. That is the growth process of the Christian life. And the scriptures provide this teaching, rebuking, correcting, and discipline training in, in righteousness. So God's in the change business. He's given us his word in order to produce profound change, moving us from an enemy of God to a child of God in salvation, and then moving us from where we are when we are saved to the image of Christ in spiritual growth. The scriptures providing the teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in order for that to happen. You see it in passages like James chapter 1, verses 22 to 25. James 1, 22 to 25. Many of you are familiar with that passage. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. And then James gives this illustration of how absurd it is to be someone who opens up the mirror of the word of God. He compares the word of God to a mirror. And it would be like looking in a physical mirror, seeing yourself there this morning, seeing what needs to be straightened out after a night of sleep and bedhead and all of the stuff, and then just going away and not doing anything, not making the changes necessitated by the look into the mirror. Likewise, when we look into the mirror of the Word of God, changes are necessitated. God intends for changes to happen, but very often we don't do that. God's in the change business, therefore we have series like this. But we're not very often in the change business like we should be. Partly because we don't think change is necessary, as I said two weeks ago. 
For too many Christians, the objective of the Christian life is simply to find out if you're going to have a pl- where you're going to have your place in the next life. That is, am I going to go to heaven? And once that issue is determined, once I've received Christ as Savior, well, now I'm just biding my time. But the truth is, the Bible teaches that this life matters. <coughs> Excuse me. This life matters, and it's not just a matter of am I going to heaven. If you believe in eternal security, the moment you receive Christ as Savior, that question has already been answered. You're going to heaven. So then why does God leave you here? God leaves you here in order to bring glory to himself. And that bringing glory to himself means the display of his character. He's at work in you, making you look more like him. So this life matters. And the time that God gives us in this life matters. And change is at the heart of why what happens with us in this life. So many of us just don't think it's necessary. And then another another thing that happens is uh, we just don't think it's possible uh, and we just sort of catch that false idea. So this change idea is important. It's necessary. We often don't think it is because we focus our attention on just going to heaven. And we don't see it often enough. We hang around Christian people who are just apathetic. I've been walking with the Lord. I've been a Christian for many, many years. And I'm just kind of going through the motions. And honestly, that's the way it can be in church settings a lot of times. And you hang around enough people like that. And by osmosis, you sort of catch that too. And so we sort of catch the disease of apathy. You know, I am where I am and I'm an old dog. And you don't teach an old dog new tricks. And as I said a couple of weeks ago, that would be true if we were talking about dogs and tricks. But we're not. We're not dogs. We're people made in the image of God. And we're not talking about tricks. We're talking about being conformed to the image of Jesus, and so it's it's that important. So God is in the change business, and that is why we do a series like this. Now, at the heart of change is a change of perspective, a change in the way you think, a change in the way you look at life, the way you look at God, the way you look at others, the way you look at your circumstance. At the heart of change is a change of perspective. And many of you know that the word repentance in the Bible is a word that is about change. In fact, it literally means a change. A change of mind that leads to a change of direction, that leads to a change of life. And so repentance requires this change of perspective, this change of mind. Because of that, I have had this phrase that I've used over the years in in counseling and in teaching, and some of you have heard it. It's this, that expectations minus reality equals trouble. Expectations minus reality equals trouble. Now, here's why I say that, because at the heart of change is a proper perspective, looking at things the right way. But one of the reasons we often don't look at things accurately, we don't look at them the right way, is because we come into our circumstances with expectations. And those expectations are very often false expectations. So how do I think about uh, my life? What do I expect to happen? Do I expect if I do right that things will go right? You know, a lot of people think that. A lot of people have grown up that way. A lot of people have have grown up with a 
a kind of um, a retribution theology in reverse. Retribution theology is this, that if you do something wrong, you're going to get punished every time you do something wrong. So if something's going bad in your life, there's a one-to-one correspondence between this bad thing and something bad you did. But a lot of people have the opposite view. It's that if I do things right, then things are going to turn out right. And neither of those are true. The truth is you can have bad things going on in your life and you didn't actually do anything directly to make that thing happen. And further, you can be doing things right and things still don't turn out the way you would like. According to the Bible and the Bible's description of life in a fallen world. So this issue of expectations is extremely important. What expectations, what perspective, what way of thinking do you bring into the circumstances of your life? Expectations minus reality equals trouble. That is, there's the way I think it should go, however I acquired that way of thinking. And then there's the reality. There's what's really going on. And very often, I can't change the reality. I'm stuck with it. Sometimes the it is actually a person. (laughs) I'm stuck with him. I'm stuck with her. I'm stuck at that job with them. I go to that school with those people. So it, the circumstance may be an it, non-personified, but it may involve persons. But either way, I come to it with these expectations and there's the reality and there's a gap between them. And often the reality can't be changed. It may be an illness that I've acquired and it's incurable. Well, I can't change that. Or it may be that I'm in a marriage where the person that I married didn't meet the expectations that I came into it with. Well, how am I going to change that? Well, there's there's divorce, but is, is, is divorce a biblical option in your situation? Very often not. But people still want to still want to change it. Expectations minus reality result in all sorts of difficulty, all sorts of trouble. Anger, frustration, depression. And it all goes back to the perspective. It all goes back to the expectations. If I do right, it should go right. And then when that doesn't happen, now my world is turned upside down. Or I expect that people are going to treat me in a particular way. And what do I do if those expectations are not met? Very often it exacerbates, makes worse the problem because I came into it with false expectations. So hear this. You may and I may love what we want. You see, I have an expectation. I want things to go a particular way. And the problem if that goes unevaluated, is I may love the thing or things that I want. And if I love the thing or things that I want, and those thi- those thing, uh, persons or things are anything other than God, then that means I am loving something more than God 
if I sin in the absence of getting that thing. So I have this expectation. And my perspective is that it should happen a particular way, and it doesn't. it's not happening that way. And so now as a result of that, I'm angry. As a result of that, I'm depressed. As a result of that, I lash out. As a result of that, I react sinfully. If I'm doing that, I'm revealing that I want and, in fact, I love that thing more than I love God. So what's God going to do? If you have an expectation, a thing you desire, something you want, and you have revealed that you want that thing more than God because you sin in the absence of having it, what do you think God's going to do about that thing? God's going to make sure that you learn to love him more than that. And God's going to work in the absence of that. God's going to work to take that away, if need be. All in order to move your affections and my affections toward him. So what all of that means is that God is at work in the heat of your life. God's at work in the circumstances, the difficulty of your life. Now, do we have the, you guys have the chart on page six. And you see the heat there. And then you can see on the screen here. And I think we have an enlarged version. Thank you guys. So we're going to be going through, continuing going through this uh, chart together. And the heat refers to what is your situation? We're going to talk again today, we did two weeks ago, about our various situations in the heat of life, life seen as kind of a desert going, journeying through a wilderness, and then there's the heat that bears down upon us in the circumstances of our lives, and how we react to those is going to determine whether or not God's good purpose, even in the difficulties, is is achieved. So at the top of page 7, here's the big question. As God sees me respond to the heat in my world, what in me does he want to change? Where is God calling me to personal change right now? We're going to look at these passages that are listed for you on page 7 in order to fill in and answer that and answer that question. So let me start it out this way. What words or phrases would you use to describe the world? Now, when I refer to the world, I'm not talking about creation for for the moment. You know, if we just think about God's creation, words that we might use are, are beautiful and astounding and amazing and all of God's creative activity seen in his creation. So that's all true. But when I ask the question, what kind of words would you use to describe the world. I'm talking about life in the world. Life as it's lived in the world. What kind of words would you use to describe that? Well, notice on page 7 from Romans chapter 8 that Paul, who wrote Romans chapter 8, uses three phrases to describe life in a fallen world. The creation was, here's the first one, subjected to frustration. Subjected to frustration. We'll see the other, we'll see the other two, uh, in just a bit. But it was subjected to frustration. So what that means is we face futility in this broken world. Nothing seems to work out. Nothing seems to, to change. It seems like our efforts count for nothing. You wake up in the morning, you have a knot in your stomach because you know the problem, whatever the problem is, is still there. 
This frustration exists in little irritations like traffic, in very huge disasters like hurricanes. You see it when squabbling children spoil another family dinner, or when money-hungry executives bankrupt your company, they leave you without a job. Sin has frustrated the world. The New Testament word for that is the cosmos. has frustrated the cosmos, and none of us will escape it. So where do you, in your personal life, where do you encounter frustration in your life? So what's the world like? That's what the Bible says. Description number one is subjected to frustration. But then here's the second one. Page 7, that passage goes on. The creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, that would be God, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from, and here's the second description, bondage to decay. Subjected to frustration, bondage to decay. Now, why that phrase? Because everything that's living is dying in some way. The bondage lies in our inability to reverse the process. Remember I said there's reality, and reality sometimes can't be, can't be changed. It's as close to us as our physical bodies from the very moment that we're conceived. This dying process begins. You see it in other places as well. That great new car that you bought is going to succumb to rust and mechanical problems. The bouquet of flowers is going to wilt and die. Our houses deteriorate, relationships disintegrate. Even our spiritual lives drift into coldness and, and deadness. And God, who once seemed close, is now distant. In God's original plan, life was to give way to life on into eternity, but sin has inflicted decay. And none of us will escape that. So, where do you encounter that in your life? Ask yourself, just like you're asking yourself, where do I encounter frustration in my life? Where do I encounter this decay and this bondage to decay, the fact that I can't change it in my life? That's the second one. Here's the third one. The creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. That's the third one. What's the world like now, a fallen world like now from God's perspective? It's groaning as in the pains of childbirth. So if, ladies, if you've, you've had children, you can't read that phrase dispassionately because you know the pain that goes, that goes with that. The first two phrases that are used in that, that passage to describe what life is like focus on our experience in the midst of it. But this phrase, the, the pains groaning as in the pains of childbirth, focuses on not just what life is like, but actually how it is that we, uh, how we feel it, how it affects us. It's filled with struggle and pain. So as you consider... Those, those verses and how the Bible describes life, frustration, decay, pain, they're all true for all of us living in a fallen, a fallen world. And you see it everywhere. In nature, you see storms and pollution, natural disasters, vicious animals in our physical bodies. 
We have disease, we have weakness, we have old age in our relationships, we have conflict, division, and violence. In the mechanical world, it's plane crashes and train wrecks and appliance breakdowns. In human culture, you see distorted values and racism and corrupt government, ethnic cleansing, perverted justice. In work, where weeds and thorns and all the matters mentioned uh, already make our labor all the more burdensome. Then you add to that that there really is the reality of personal evil in the world. The Bible does describe a malevolent force, a malevolent person called Satan, who is seeking to make life all the more difficult for you and to use all of those things against you as temptations to turn you and your affections from the true and living God toward other things. To make idols out of these things that are broken and decaying and into which we are in bondage. So that in the absence of having them, my life is now going to be miserable and I'm going to disobey disobey God. So this frustration, this decay, this pain, they're not signs of having been forsaken or forgotten or singled out by God. They're normal for everybody who lives in this fallen world on earth. You encounter environmental brokenness, sinful brokenness within you, and the presence of a real enemy in Satan. And when all of that happens, how do you handle it? How do you react to it? So when you take a video of something going on or some people, the one thing about that video is if you're taking it is you're not in it. And that's what happens when we think about our circumstances a lot of times. We talk about the circumstances, but we we forget to put ourselves in the circumstance. We talk about the other people that are in it. We talk about how bad the situation is, but we don't talk about us in it. We don't talk about how we are handling it. We don't talk about how we're reacting to it. And as a result of leaving ourselves out of it, There's no way that the change that God desires to happen in our lives can take place because we're continually focused outwardly. Focused on other people, focused on the external circumstance. But the Bible always finds you and me in the situation. It focuses on what we do in the midst of the circumstance. The Bible uses a lot of images to describe life, but one of those is as a a wilderness. And you guys know that there's the story, a very prominent story in your Bible, about the wilderness wanderings of God's people having emerged from Egypt. They were to go into the promised land. They disobeyed God because they were fearful to do what he told them to do. There were people already there, and those people are stronger than we are, and therefore we're not going to obey God and go in. And as a result of their disobedience, God said, I'm going to give you one day wandering in the wilderness for every, uh, for one year wandering in the wilderness for every day that you delayed obeying. They took 40 days to send these spies in to find out if it was okay to do this. And as a result, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And during those 40 year wilderness wanderings, God taught us a number of things about them, but also about ourselves. In your New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Bible tells us that those things were written down as examples for us. So we can learn a bunch from what those people did 
Because those people are like us. So I have on page seven for you some of those some of those passages from the book of Numbers recording the wilderness wanderings of, of God's people. We'll be looking at those passages in, in a moment. But the first thing that they encountered, one of the things that they encountered as they were in the wilderness was complaining and complaining about the food. You all remember that? So in Numbers chapter 14, that's what you'll read. You'll read about people in the wilderness. Now they have come out of hundreds of years, hundreds of years of bondage, slavery in Egypt. God has delivered them with a mighty hand. But now they've left Egypt and here's what they're focused on. The food. The food is lousy in the wilderness. And it's not so much it's lousy, it's just the same thing. It's manna every single day. God, didn't you make all of this? Can't we come up with a little variety? And so the Bible uses the words murmuring and complaining about about the menu. Now, the startling thing about that is that this so-called trial is relatively minor. It centers on a monotonous menu. But the Bible doesn't focus on the trial. It, it focuses on how the people responded to the situation. What were some of the reactions? If you go read in Numbers chapter 14, verses 4 to, to 23, and I would encourage you to do that on your own. Excuse me, I said Numbers uh, 14, Numbers chapter 11, Numbers chapter 11, verses 4 to 23. And if you were to go and read that, you'll find some of the reactions. They complained, complained, they wailed, they longed for the past, they criticized their leader, they rejected the Lord, they questioned God's plan. So that was what they were doing. It wasn't just this impersonal thing that was going on. There were people, real life people in it, who were reacting in particular ways. Now apply that to yourself. When you face difficulty, don't you tend to do the same things? Long for the way it was before. Look for somebody to blame. Question God's goodness. Question God's faithfulness, his love, and his wisdom. And notice when we do it that way, when we long for the way it was before, when we look for somebody to blame, when we question God in it, notice what's absent in all of that. Notice who's absent. We are. And so we easily remove ourselves from the picture and we blame our circumstances. We blame God or we blame other people. And we forget that the hardship, hear this, the hardship is made even harder by the way we respond to it. So one vignette of these wilderness wanderings that shows us what we're like in what they were like is they're complaining about the menu. But here's another one. We see in them fear of threatening circumstances. And I have that for you on page 7. Numbers chapter 14. 
It says, that night, all the people of the community raised their voices and they wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this desert. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to be back in Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Wow. That's one reason, by the way, leaders don't lead by polling people. If Moses led by taking a poll, they'd still be back in Egypt. But this is what they were, this is what they were saying. So this now takes it a step further from just grumbling about the menu. If the struggles within the wilderness are overwhelming, the prospects of now entering the promised land now, according to Numbers 14, are even more daunting. In the previous chapter, in Numbers chapter 13, spies had entered Canaan, the promised land, to assess assess what would have to happen in order for them to take possession of it. The people panicked when they got the report that there were people there who were fearsome, And they learned that life in the promised land is not going to be free of trials either. They realize they're going to have these huge obstacles in the promised land. And then when you come to Numbers chapter 14, they're in an all-out panic. And they ask themselves, why did we ever leave Egypt? Why is the Lord bringing this on us? What's going to happen to our wives and children? Wouldn't it be better if we were back in Egypt? All right, that's what all those guys did. And as you read that, and you hear that, are you thinking, man, what idiots those guys are. I'd never do that. But remember, these things are included for us. And so let's be honest now and admit that we very often do the very same thing. We ask, how in the world did I get here? Where's the Lord in all of this? What's going to happen to me now? What am I going to do? And we have a real level of fear and doubt and panic that further complicate an already difficult situation. So here's a third vignette from these wilderness wanderings. They play the blame game. The blame game. Chapter 20, we have for you in the middle of page 7. Numbers chapter 20. In the first month, the whole Israelite community arrived at the desert of Zin, and they stayed at Kadesh. There Miriam died and was buried. Now, there was no water for the community, and the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses, and they said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this desert that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to this terrible place? It has no grain or figs, grapevines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. So what are they doing? They're playing the blame game. As they're continuing on this wilderness journey, things deteriorate further from just the menu and the fear of threatening circumstances when they go into the promised land. But now they're complaining about pretty much everything and focusing it on Moses. Moses is an easy target, but he's really not responsible for the situation that they're in. Who is it that led them to the very place they were? I mean, literally led them by the Shekinah glory, right? The pillar of fire. Who led them? God did. So hear this, friends. There's a lesson for you in the heat of your life. 
When you complain about your circumstances, you are actually complaining about the God of those circumstances. And that's precisely what was happening here. And it shows us how quickly pain and difficulty changes, morphs into anger. It calls us to humbly admit that we tend to respond sinfully to whatever difficulty we encounter. So here are some real-life examples. The agitated hospital patient yells at his nurse. The husband who feels neglected by his wife becomes bossy and demanding. Salesman who gets stuck in traffic blares his horn at the car in front of him. The stressed-out mom is harsh and critical with her children. And yet this passage in Numbers chapter 20 and, and many like it in Scripture make one thing very clear. The anger that we reveal in the middle of our circumstance says more about us than it does about the circumstance. The Bible keeps the focus on us. It confronts the self-righteousness and the spiritual blindness that make us think that our greatest problems are outside of us rather than inside of us. We think that changes in our situation, in our location, in a relationship are going to allow us to respond differently. We say that the difficulty causes us to respond in sinful ways. The Bible teaches again and again that our circumstances don't cause us to act as we do. They only expose the true condition of our hearts that are revealed in our words and in our actions. Now, that's you, that's me, that's life. That's the way they responded. That's the way we tend to respond. What is God doing in all of this? And that's our last point. On page 7. Deuteronomy chapter 8. You see verses 2 and 3. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years. To humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart. Whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna. Which neither you nor your fathers had known. To teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth from the mouth of God. And that passage goes on with God instructing them now as they're preparing to actually enter the promised land after these 40 years. That God was actually involved in the entire thing. So stay with me for our final minutes here. Because it's important for us to understand that God isn't actively involved in the heat of your life, my life. Those wilderness wanderings were not a sign of Moses' poor leadership. They weren't a sign of God forgetting his people, being faithless toward them, God being weak. And yet that's how those who were involved in it interpreted their circumstances. They doubted God so intensely they even wanted to go back to Egypt. But in Deuteronomy chapter 8, God reminds them that he has a purpose in each trial. In each one of those situations they were in over those 40 years, he was seeking to do three things, to teach them, to humble them, and to discipline them. And that's exactly what he does with us in our circumstances. Teach us, humble us, discipline us. Now, why does he do that? I want to give you three reasons why God does that. And that's why you have some blank lines at the bottom of page 7. God was preparing them for spiritual obstacles that they would face in the future. They were going to face spiritual obstacles, he tells them, when they go into the promised land. God was preparing them for that. So very often when God has us in circumstances that are not to our liking, he's preparing us 
for something that he knows is ahead and we don't. Or something that we do know is ahead, but we need to be prepared for it. Secondly, they needed to see the tendency of their own hearts to drift from God. God was showing them the tendency of their own hearts to go their own way and wander from God. And third, they needed to see God's power at work. And so as they went through each of these things, each time God brought them through, but then as forgetful people, they forget, oh yeah, we've been through stuff like this before, right? When the idea is, and God recorded it, For the very reason that we could read what happened to them in their lives. But then there's not just reading what happened in their lives. There's what God's done in our lives. That as I said in the first hour, we tend to forget. So friends, we are, all of us, still in the wilderness. Each day we face unexpected difficulties, even blessings that knock us off our path. In all of that, God works to expose, to change, and to mature us. He's not forgotten us. He's not being remiss with regard to his promises that he's made to us. He's not left us to our own devices in ways that are glorious, sometimes hard to understand. God is with us in the heat of our lives. He calls us to turn from questioning him to examining ourselves. So where do we tend to question God's goodness, his grace, and his love? Where do you toy with the idea of going back to your Egypt, whatever it was? Oh, if I'd only married that other person. And you know, I bet they're on Facebook somewhere. Happens all the time. And then people reconnect. And if they don't actually do that, at least in their minds, they're fantasizing. When do you neglect daily Bible study and worship? Where do you struggle with anger, envy, disappointment, and blame? Think of a situation or a relationship that's a regular source of struggle. What do you think about? What's your perspective about God and others and yourself as you wrestle through that? What is it that you want, expect, that you crave? If only I had fill in the blank. How do you respond to that situation, to other people, and most importantly to God? So what tends to get you the most? I'm going to give you a list of these, and you just think about them in your own mind. Problems in relationships, difficulties at work, disappointment in your marriage, problems in your church, Extended family relations, problems with your health, stresses of parenting, an overbooked schedule, the pressures of the culture, financial issues, the expectations of other people, the temptations of a promotion, the temptations of affluence. We don't think about those as temptations. But there are actually ways to draw our, can be ways to draw our hearts away. So friends, understand in the midst of all of that heat, and that's the way the Bible sees your life. That's the way the Bible sees our life. Life in a fallen world. In the midst of all of that heat, God is not only not absent, God is at work. God is at work to change us. And that's what we're going to try to see in the remaining weeks of this class now. How we react to the heat of our situation will then determine what kind of change if is made In us. Psalm 46 and verse 1. God is an ever present help in trouble. An ever present help in the midst of your heat.
Let's pray that God will help us to remember that this coming week. Father, thank you for today. Thank you that we're here. We're here by your appointment. We're here because you've allowed us to be here. I thank you, Lord, that you've worked in our hearts such that we, we want to know these things. That moving against the grain of the church culture at large, we, we do want to change. We know that you're in the change process and we want to be like you. Thank you for creating that desire in us. And I thank you for these brothers and sisters who have that evident desire. And now, Lord, help us to act upon that. Help us to take these instructions from your word and to put them into practice. Identifying now the situations that of life that we are in, the expectations, uh, the desires, the wants, the loves, the idolatry that we bring to those things so that we love it or them more than you and we sin in the in the absence of having it go the way we want. Help us to recognize indeed that expectations minus reality does result in trouble, in sin, in all kinds of frustration. It exacerbates already difficult problems. Oh Lord, root these things we ask you in our hearts so that we go today and we apply them now to the circumstances that we came to this room today from. Help us, though, even though the circumstance itself may not change, that we will go to it with a different perspective. And as a result of that different perspective, looking at you and what you are doing and what you desire to change in us, now may good fruit come out of that that will redound for our good and your glory. We ask you, Lord, to go with us this week, put these things into practice in our lives, Grant us safety and bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.